My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk Podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. I want to start off by taking everybody to um, an instant in uh, my life, in my career, probably about 10 years ago now. Um, and we were working on uh, an ecological research project on uh, timber rattlesnakes um, up in the, the state of Vermont. Uh, where where these animals are very rare. There's only a couple populations remaining. And uh, we had been out in the field uh, catching animals for this study. And um, we caught one and we noticed that it had uh, what looked like uh, very, uh, you know, kind of like fungus-like or lesions um, on, you know, on its face as well as on its body. Um, and we thought it was very strange at the time. And and right about that time, there was kind of this emerging disease, if you will, that that uh, that I was becoming aware of called fungal disease. Um, and indeed, that animal, uh, as well as others from that population, uh, did end up testing positive for it. So that is the first time that I, in a real direct way, uh, you know, saw and interacted with snake fungal disease. Since then, uh, Orient Society and myself, we've worked on multiple projects uh, with other populations of timber rattlesnakes, uh, with indigo snakes, and, and uh, in general with snakes across the state of Georgia. Um, we've done quite a bit of work, um, at least trying to document the prevalence of it. And so that's going to be the topic of today's conversation. We are going to talk about uh, snake fungal disease. And I have um, one of the world's experts on this uh, disease here today, Dr. Uh, Matthew Allender. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. Yeah, good to have you. So um, I like to start off by um, not necessarily, we're going to go in depth into your career and how you ended up getting to, to where you're sitting today. But the first thing I like to ask people is um, basically who they are. Like, so what do you do in your career uh, relative to snakes and, and uh, you know, where are you sitting today? What hats do you wear um, in your job? Well, no, that's a, that's a good question. I have, I feel like I have several hats um, and I, and I enjoy each one of them uh, very much. I, uh, I mean, you know, I, I'd I'd call myself a zoo and wildlife veterinary uh, veterinarian and epidemiologist. Um, and, you know, but, but that covers, well, a lot of different broad aspects of, of several disciplines, but 
I've always had an interest in reptiles um, since I was a little boy. Um, I, you know, I was one of those kids that would go out into the woods and we'd, we'd find um, um, different animals and, you know, you'd bring them home for a day or you, 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 you look at them and then you put them back. My, my first pet was a box turtle. Um, and uh, so, it, you know, it's always been an affinity. And, you know, I think that that was kind of going hand in hand with, with me wanting to, to save animals. Um, and, and what kind of drove me there and, you know, the path I took was to, to be a veterinarian and, and, and now I've, I've had the opportunity to expand that a little bit, but, um, you know, as I got further into my career, um, you know, this, this niche and this affinity for reptiles really tr- turned into, um, developing a skill set that, helped me to find a niche that that hadn't been filled before um one that um focused um very heavily on reptiles um, and amphibians for that matter um looking at health and disease um of free-ranging and captive um reptiles and amphibians great so you're you're a veterinarian and a epidemiologist how uh so who you know, where do you sit? Meaning, you know, who do you work for? You know, I, I know you're a professor wearing one hat and uh, where's that? And where are some of these other hats uh, that you wear? Yeah. So, so my title is a clinical assistant professor um, at the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Illinois. I'm also an associate veterinarian at the Brookfield Zoo um, with the Chicago Zoological Society. Um, those are those are my two uh, major hats. But within the university and, and within both these positions, I'm also the director of the Wildlife Epidemiology Lab. And this is a lab that I started um, about 12 years ago, um, investigating um, disease events in reptiles and amphibians. And, um, you know, we started with... Um, um, developing some tests um, to track diseases like what you you talked about, what we're probably going to be talking about later in the episode, snake fungal disease. Um, and then and then with that hat, that's where my epidemiologist hat is because we're tracking the trends in diseases. So just like the CDC is, is tracking trends and diseases um, and patterns um, in human populations, that's exactly what I do for reptiles and amphibians. Wow, that's that's excellent. I'm excited to dive into that a little bit further. But before we go there, so you've you've already said, you know, you've had this interest in in this group of animals for you know since you were a child, and um, you're in Illinois. And uh, did you grow up there as well? Yeah, no. I uh, my students at the university they they um, they get kind of shocked because I, I went kindergarten through vet school in the same town. Um, my, my mom lives closer to the vet school where I work than I do. Um, <laughs> I am a townie, um, in every sense of the word for sure. Um, so yeah, so I, uh, I grew up in central Illinois, um, which isn't really known for anything but corn and soybeans. And, um, so finding those pockets of forest and prairie where, um, where I can, you know, find wildlife and um, was pretty was pretty rare, but also obviously pretty impactful for my life. Yeah. And as you are well aware, uh, you know, people who, who follow a career trajectory like us that might end up in academia or, or something like that, you know, that's pretty rare to to um, 
not even necessarily grow up in the same town, but to, to stay at the same academic institution for all of your degrees and then end up working there as well. So uh, I'd be curious to hear about that. But I want to start with, you know, so you grew up in the area and you, you had this interest in, in reptiles and amphibians. And it sounds like you were finding those those little hidden wood lots and, you know, probably swamps and things like that. But how did you translate that into uh, knowing that you're interested in working with these animals and also uh, that you're interested in working in with diseases? Is that something that you knew uh, when you uh, began college there in Illinois? Or is that something that kind of uh, came about later on in your undergraduate career? Yeah, no, I I don't think seven-year-old Matt would, would have envisioned um, this as um, an opportunity um, or, or what I would end up doing. And, and I think you'd be pretty pleased um, that, it, that it developed into this. Um, you know, seven-year-old Matt wanted to be um, a veterinarian. And, you know, I guess for most of my um, life, um, you know, e- even probably all the way up until undergrad, I just assumed vets saw dogs and cats or were on a farm and, and, and took care of cows and horses and pigs. Like the, the, I I didn't think that this was something that people did. Um, And, you know, in all reality at this point, I don't know another colleague of mine that does what I do either. So, um, but you know, I, I never thought there was diversity in veterinary medicine. I thought veterinary medicine was pretty static, was pretty like you're going to see dogs and cats. And 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 that's what I had always envisioned. Um, I knew I mean, I you know, you have a passion for animals. All of us do in this field. And, you know, I, I my passion always led me to wanting to to save them in the form of veterinary medicine. Um, but, yeah, no, this this was not the, the plan early on. Um, but it did develop during during undergrad, I would say. Yeah. And so I want to come back to that here in a minute. But so was your major as an undergraduate? Was it in biology? Is there a, like a pre-vet major? How, how did that um, break? Yeah. Out? Well, some universities have pre-vet, but University of Illinois doesn't. So um, my major actually was ecology, ethology and evolution. Um, and, you know, veterinarian, I mean, you can get into veterinary school with any degree, like an English degree. Um, but, um, and I would say most people, um, are in an animal science related field. Um, ecology, ethology, and evolution was, was a passion of mine. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's something that, that spoke to me. Um, but I never necessarily thought it was going to integrate as much as it does, much as it does now with veterinary medicine. And so, yeah, so I took a lot of ecology classes in undergrad. Um, I spent summers, um, I was a keeper intern at Brookfield Zoo um, between my uh, second and third year, uh, sophomore and junior year of uh, undergrad. And again, that's where I started to try to merge my interest in, in saving animals with the means and the mechanisms and, and, and the pathways that were likely to get me to, to, to get to my goals. And, you know, I started to ask a lot of, um, individuals in the field that I looked up to and I, or I, or I observed and see and saw how their path was. 
And, you know, zoos give a pretty tremendous opportunity and platform for conservation issues. Um, also, as a very discreet profession of, of zoo veterinary medicine, it's not necessarily easy, but it, it, it's, it gave some diversity more towards what I was looking for. Um, and so I was, I was kind of exploring and starting to explore at that point. And by the end of, of undergrad, um, I, I was fairly focused on being a zoo and wildlife veterinarian, um, even before I got to vet school. Great. And then, so how does that work? Do you, so you finish your undergraduate, um, do you go on to a standard graduate school before vet school? Did you go get like a, a, like an MS or a PhD, um, before getting your, uh, I guess, doctorate in uh, veterinary medicine? How did that play out? Yeah, this is where multiple avenues in my life and, and stuff start to merge, and it's hard to separate one versus another. But no, I went straight to vet school um, after four years of undergrad. Um, that's the typical pattern for for most people. Um, in my last semester of um, of vet school, a course that's only offered every other year and only to juniors and seniors was herpetology. Um, and, you know, I mean, obviously I had an interest, but that was a pretty transformative, um, class and, um, you know, it's my first formal training in herpetology. And so that, that class led me to doing field work after, um, undergrad before vet school, where I was working on Eastern Massasaugas in Illinois. I was a field assistant for, for a year. Um, it was the first year of a long-term, and it's still going, uh, Massasauga conservation project um, with several different individuals. Um, and uh, it, it really started to hone my interest in, in, in wanting to, to be involved in conservation and melding my conservation and, and uh, medical skills. So I we went to vet school with, with not thinking about anything else other than getting into vet school and knowing what my end goal was. But over the course of the first year of vet school, um, it became clear that there was an opportunity for a joint or a concurrent um, degree, master's degree um, that could be pursued. And so I, I sought out um, a professor um, at the time doing ecotoxicology, um, uh, Dr. Val Beasley, Amazing mentor for me. Um, and he and my undergrad herpetology um, professor and I all got together and started to think about how I could integrate or we could integrate health issues into this Massasauga project that was underway. Um, and out of that came a proposal for a master's project um, that I did um, concurrently with my veterinary degree. Um, Excellent. And was that, uh, we don't need to get in great detail, but was that snake fungal disease related? Because uh, I want to say it has been found to be fairly prevalent in Massasaugas. Maybe I'm wrong there. but No, we'll get to, we'll get to that, I'm sure. But yeah, Massasaugas are one of the poster childs of snake fungal disease. It, it is the population that we discovered it in um, and started all of the, the, the national discussion from from Illinois um, was with Massasaugas and with this population that I started with. Like I was, after that first summer, I was so invested in it. Like I went back every year to do field work as a volunteer basis in between vet school. And, um, you know, honestly, I think my, my undergrad herpetology professor thought he lost me when he went to vet, when I went to vet school. 
Um, little did he know that, that um, I'd be coming back and probably a thorn in his side now, but um, we, we, we've been able to do a lot of different things. And, you know, that, you know, after four years of vet school, I, I graduated with that degree, but the research for my master's continued and, and I actually didn't get that, um, finished that master's um, because I wanted some more field work until two years after I graduated vet school. Ah, you know, I have only ever seen one Massasauga in the wild, and it was in Illinois. Um, I have I've just spent almost no time uh, looking for them. So, uh, yes, uh, just uh, we won't talk about them in depth or ecology, but they're a fascinating, relatively small rattlesnake that is uh, most of the time, uh, at least the Easterns are associated with kind of swampy type habitats. So. Yeah. Really cool animal. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Prairie wetland. They're, they're, a um, they're an interesting species, but they are small and, um, they, um, fill this ecological niche, um, um, where they're using crayfish burrows in Illinois in order to hibernate. Um, so conservation efforts, you know, um, are, are complex with most of our venomous species across the, the country and, and, and non-venomous such as indigos because they rely on other species in order to provide the environments or the habitats that allow them to thrive and, and increase. And Massasaugas have definitely um, sac been sacrificed numerous times um, and are a conservation threat largely because of habitats. And then adding yeah. disease onto that, as we'll talk about, is kind of the um, straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah. Well, there's as we track your career trajectory, uh, there's two things that that I see as kind of like challenges, um, and I'm just curious to ask you about them and and if you saw them as challenges and any experiences you had relative to that. But we'll start with the first one that I called out the the idea that it's very rare. To, to do all of your school in one place and end up working at that same place. I'm just curious um, if that was, a, a, first of all, if that was a conscious goal of yours to, to be at this, this institution, the University of Illinois, or, um, it, you know, if it just happened like that. And then um, if it was a conscious goal, um, did you, did you find any challenges along the way relative to making that happen? I think that's a, that's a, I don't know if that's a complex. We're getting into the psyche of Matt here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, I would say that growing up in this town, I had an incredible affinity for the University of Illinois. Like those are my allegiances on my sports teams. And, um, you know, it, it, it it was a passion, um, but being practical, you know, how, how much does 16 and 17 year old um, individuals know about, you know, where to put themselves in the best position to, to get their goals. And again, in high school, my goal was to go to vet school and Illinois has a vet school. And there's only at the time, there were only 17 in the entire country. Um, and so the Illinois becomes it's a it's a prestigious university and had a vet school, I very much felt that um, aligning myself there would help me um, be more successful in, in getting into vet school. Um, the master's was opportunistic because I was trying to integrate lots of different things. Um, 
And, uh, um, and so that, that, you know, I'd say that some of it was directed and some of it was just by chance. And, you know, we haven't, we haven't gotten to my, the fifth of my, um, five degrees from Illinois quite yet. Um, but the, the PhD, um, was after a stint in Tennessee, um, at the university of Tennessee, um, where I did my residency in zoological and animal, um, and, and, um, wildlife medicine with the Knoxville zoo and, mm-hmm. and UT. And so I spent three years doing that. And, you know, that's, um, for those that are in academia, it's kind of like a clinical postdoc. It's for specialization in zoo and wildlife medicine. Um, and I was doing mainly clinical work most of the time, but that's where my box turtle project started. Um, and honestly, without my box turtle projects, there would have probably been no wildlife happy lab and no snake fungal disease discovery the way it was. And mm-hmm. so that time huh. in Tennessee was critical. And, you know, as I was leaving there, um, looking for my next opportunities, um, to be honest, the PhD wasn't necessarily on the radar. Um, I wanted to do conservation-based health research and that um, there were several opportunities, but Illinois gave me the best opportunity. And, and I think um, once I got back, um, then academia kind of kicks in, you know, and um, you know, there's some politics and, and trying to position yourself to keep positions that um, you're already in. Um, and so the PhD was a mechanism mechanism to have the job that I wanted. Um, and so that was very much like everybody else does a PhD. You gain, do it to gain skills and to get a job. And, um, and so it just happened to be at Illinois, um, that opportunity. I joined the faculty at Illinois before I did the PhD. Um, I did the PhD while I was already on faculty. Oh, okay. Okay. So the other kind of, I guess I'd call it a challenge, um, you know, or a hurdle is if, you mentioned this to some degree, but if you are going to be a veterinarian, um, you know, I have to assume that by far the largest percentage of them are working on dogs and cats. And it's probably the safest route, meaning um, highest probability of finding a career where you can make a good living. Um, I'm sure some people actually love dogs and cats and and, and want to go that direction, but I'm I'm guessing that some of those people would love to be sitting in your chair or working at a zoo. Um, and then you even mentioned kind of these like farm, you know, large animal veterinarians, people who work on horses, and, and I have to think that's even a smaller segment than the the typical dog and cat operation. And then you've got the zoo component, um, and. and you know, as you start to go through those those different specialties, I have to think that the the specialty area that you're in um, is probably the you know the the narrowest, it, it, not narrowest, but the you know the, the fewest number of positions out there, and uh, and there's probably a fair number of people, whether you know either veterinarians or non-veterinarians, that that would love to work into that type of position. And so I'm just curious. Um, given that, that you were shooting for this, um, this very specific, uh, part of your field, um, did you experience particular challenges with that or just kind of putting your head down Did that, um, work well and help you achieve those goals? Uh, I think, um, that's another good question and, and, um, to bring up and, you know, I, 
I don't know that it was that um, calculated or that thought out. Um, I know the things that drive my passion and I, and I, and I was the position that I have now didn't exist. Um, and so um, I came back to Illinois and joined the faculty. Um, they offered me a position to teach anatomy to first year vet students. Um, and they said, you can do whatever research you want. We don't care, but this is your job is to do this anatomy. As long as that happens and you can do what you want. So, um, you know, I, I had other opportunities to be a zoo veterinarian at that point at, at other institutions. And, but that would give me less flexibility to do the conservation and have the freedom to do the type of, of, um, um, research that I think was going to help drive this field forward. And, um, but I didn't know what it was going to look like. I, I, I truly didn't. And, and so when I started, like it was just me in the lab. And then I would occasionally have an hourly student, you know, in years two and three. And, and, and now it's got multiple veterinarians and technicians and uh, numerous different grad students and students. And, you know, I didn't think that way when, um, you know, it's been it's been a lot more organic. Um, like I've seen a need where the conservation was and initially it was turtles and ronavirus. And um, and then it became really quickly snake fungal disease. And and since then, it's it's expanded to lots of other pathogens and disease processes that we may we may get into a little bit. But um, I, I would say that in academia, there's struggles and obstacles at every step of the way. Um, you know, and I would say, you know, I you know, I don't, I don't mean this as a, to degrade because it, it's, I've gotten to be where I am, but, but academia is tough. Um, and, and there are many days where, um, because of the field is so undefined for me and it's so out of the normal is that I felt like every day I was coming in and justifying my existence and then doing my job. Um, and that's, that's a really hard place to be, but if you're passionate about it and as I am, um, you know, it's, it's worth going through that. And that doesn't mean my path hasn't changed. And, um, and throughout even the last 10 to 12 years, but it, um, as I've gotten older, I, I know the things that I feel like I can add to this field. And I've been heavily focused on making sure that my impact is, is, is where I can best be suited. Yeah, my career is very similar, meaning that uh, this job didn't exist and, you know, I created it. And um, and so I think that's a that's a great story there. And that's everybody's answer. Just go out and create the job you want. Um, you know, obviously, it's not that simple and you need to have a lot of great opportunity and help and resources along the way. But I do think it's a good message for people that have a goal um, that, that you can you know, even in, say, academia or in conservation biology, you can, you know, you can go out and, and create a career and a future for yourself. You don't always have to just kind of, uh, you know, fit into this other system. So great. Well, <clears throat> I want to I want to shift now and start talking a little bit about diseases. So we're going to spend most of the time talking about snake fungal disease, but I'd like to start with the concept of the word disease. And uh, uh, I had Dr. Wellahan, a colleague of yours, on uh, a previous episode and asked him the same question. And 
Um, but I think it's worth reiterating because uh, because I, I think I don't think I ever had a clear understanding of, of a, a disease. It, it's a word that's used in so many different ways. So how would you define like reptile disease or, or wildlife diseases? Just how, what does that word mean to you? How does it structure relative to things, say, like, you know, you put it into snake fungal disease or you, you know, think you mentioned ronavirus. You know, how, just tell us what disease means. <laughs> Well, um, you know, I, I, I'm going to approach this from two different ways, but um, I'm going to start, you know, being very direct to, to your question in that what what do I feel diseases and 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 what what do I think of when I hear that word disease? And it's a it's a complex process that involves um, uh, an animal's response to um, a change in um, homeostatic um, processes, whether that's induced by an infectious pathogen like Ophidiomyces or Ronavirus or a non-infectious pathogen such as heart disease or, um, you know, skin disease that's not bacterial in nature. And so the, the key component for a disease is that it, it involves the animal's response. Um, mm. And, and so, you know, when, from an epidemiological standpoint, that's critical definition um, characteristic because um, you can go out and there's a lot of tests that test for a pathogen like Ophidiomyces. But just because an animal has a pathogen or that pathogen doesn't mean it has disease. If it could just be a carrier, it could just be in on the animal. It could have eaten an animal that had that inside of it. And it, it's not causing any problems. When it causes problems in the animal, that's the trigger for it to be called a disease or for what I think of it as a disease. So in theory, a snake could have Ophidiomyces, but you would not say that it has snake fungal disease if it wasn't showing some type of response uh, to that. Correct. Uh, interesting. Um, uh, yeah, so you can correct my terminology as we go through, because I would probably just call it uh, <laughs> snake fungal disease. But, um, but yeah, no, that's great. I, I appreciate that clarification. So before we get into snake fungal disease, I do want to touch on something, and I want to I do just because I selfishly want to learn a little bit more about it. In that, so when I was doing my PhD at Idaho State University, I had an undergraduate student. Um, what's his name? Scott Farnsworth, I believe. Yeah, I know Scott. And um, yeah, offline, I'd be curious to know what he's doing today. I haven't seen him in years. But anyways, uh, you know, so he was working with me when he was an undergraduate doing uh, rattlesnake ecology work in the field. And he went off to, to do his master's research in Maryland, I believe. Um, I think the field sites were in Maryland. Yeah, Thompson University. Yeah, and he was uh, he was studying box turtles, and we were keeping in touch at that point. And he was studying box turtles, and I, I think I want to say he was looking at something like you know their ecology and kind of a human fragmented landscape. And he started to notice that a lot of his turtles were losing a ton of weight, just were becoming very light. And, um, you know, he started to see high mortality rates and, uh, and basically, you know, I don't know how his thesis ended up coming together, but, you know, the kind of the last correspondence I had with him was the idea that, 
his thesis was changing rapidly from the original plan to this potential new issue. And so I'm curious, I know you have a lot of experience, obviously, we're talking about it was coronavirus and that issue. I'm just curious if you could just give us the, you know, the 30,000 foot level on coronavirus. It has the name Rana in it. You might also uh, touch on that relative to other taxonomic groups like turtles. But but what can you tell us about turtles in particular and coronavirus? Well, this one, uh, you're going to have to cut me off here at some point, Chris. Um, <laughs> 30,000 foot view for ronavirus and turtles for me is difficult. This was my PhD topic. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, and Scott's story is a lot more complex and it's really intriguing. So I, I may just touch a little bit on that as well. But, um, you know, ronavirus was initially discovered in uh, 19, the 1960s by a researcher that was working um, on leopard frogs um, at an NIH facility. They were looking there. There's a herpes virus that causes a tumor in kidneys and they were um, in, in frogs. And they were looking at as a model for human um, diseases. But what they found not was they didn't find tumors. They found frogs dying and um, pretty much having a massive hemorrhage throughout their body. And they found this new virus. And, and so they termed it ronavirus and, and leopard frog was the first one. And since that point in time, it's been diagnosed um, all over the world in reptiles and amphibians. Um, it, it is one of the primary threats um, to conservation of terrestrial um, and aquatic um, habit um, um, amphibians in um, this time kind of temperate zones of North America. Um, Kitrid is obviously a big deal in, in Central America and the tropic areas, but Kitrid is less of a, um, of a conservation threat than ronavirus. So if you have some perspective and know how bad Kitrid can be, ronavirus is worse for amphibians in our neck of the woods. In the temperate region, like yep. Kitrid, for example, say in the tropics, yep. um, is, is more significant than ronavirus, correct? Yep. Yeah, coronavirus is, is an incredibly interesting virus itself. Um, it's devastating, though. And, you know, I would say that 10, 15 years ago when when I was um, I mean, this has been my work since 2004 um, has been coronavirus and turtles um, until about five or six years ago. It was hard to describe what the clinical syndrome of coronavirus is and why it's such a uh, a devastating disease, but but it's easier now. And I'll give you the analogy: is that coronavirus um, in turtles is equivalent to Ebola in humans, where you have massive hemorrhage, bleeding from every organ um, in the body, um, and then and then subsequent um, death of those organs. Um, it attacks epithelial cells. The transmission studies, you know, we know in Ebola that it's 21 days from contact to when you're developing the disease. In turtles, we know it's 17 days. Um, it's, you know, the, 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 the mortality rate is greater than 90% in turtles, especially box turtles that um, have been exposed. Um, How is it transmitted? Is it uh, via air? Is it, you know, do they need to have some bodily fluid? How, how does one turtle pass it to another? No, it's you, you, you led right into to usually my closing line. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, this perfect. Like you set it up. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna hopefully knock it out of the park for you. But the, uh, um, you know, Ebola is transmitted directly through um, close contact and saliva. That's the difference. Uh, Ronavirus is transmitted mainly through water. 
So uh, you have an amphibian that dies or a turtle that's soaking in water. They're releasing millions and billions of copies. And then that's how all of those animals ex are exposed. And typically we see die-offs um, that last between four and six weeks. But in amphibians, um, there have been reports that up, upwards of 1,500 salamanders have died within about a three-week period um, within a single pond. It is an absolute devastating disease um, with no treatment um, for the most part. And is it, how long does it persist in the environment? Is it something like chronic wasting disease and in deer species where it, it, it just is in the environment for seemingly uh, endless time periods? Or is it something that, you know, uh, it perishes itself um, shortly after the animal die off? Well, you know, this leads to known and unknown, you know, answers for um, that I can give you is that the, one of the interesting things is that viruses are usually enveloped or not enveloped. Um, and that affects how long they last in the environment. Enveloped um, um, viruses do not last long. Um, they, they, it's like herpes viruses and things. They, you know, once they see sunlight or air, they dry out. They, I mean, they have no contact time. Um Ronaviruses exist in both forms. It's one of the only types of viruses that do. That do. And so we know that in the non-enveloped form, it can survive months um, in soil and water. And that's um, reinforced by the biology um, that we're seeing in, in, in animals because there are cyclical events. Once one site has a ronavirus outbreak, usually they'll have outbreaks either every year, every three you know, somewhere um, at, on a pattern, but it, it's never a one and done. So it does survive. Um, but the question is whether or not it survives only in the environmental um, samples, uh, the abiotic things like soil, dirt, or if there are carrier species such as bullfrogs or leopard frogs, which don't tend to die very often from ronavirus. Um, and those are expanding and emerging um, species in lots of places they're non-native now and if they're carrying this disease and then they're bringing it to all of these other ponds and shedding once a year or once every other year this is how those outbreaks occur um you know uh, I, you know i think that this is likely happening in some regard i think there's also likely some environmental reservoir but it's a cautionary tale to releasing animals and to controlling non non-native species Hmm. Another question uh, relates to box turtles in a sense. So you mentioned that box turtles, it sounds like, um, have been maybe proportionally more impacted by this than some other animals and just struck me. I mean, obviously, box turtles go in water. But uh, as far as many of the turtle species in the eastern U.S., they're one of the more terrestrial turtles that you see. Um, and this, this virus resides in the ponds. Um, which points to me just would tell me that there's something about this animal that makes them maybe more susceptible. And what I'm ultimately getting at is, do you see a lot of variation, say, across turtle species um, in, in their susceptibility? And then I want to finish the ronavirus discussion by having you tell me about ronavirus and snakes. Is there any issue there? So there's two questions for you. All right. Well, let's let's start about box turtles and species differences. Box turtles um, are heavily reported in the literature to be sensitive, and they are sensitive. But aquatic turtles, at least in the wild, are unreported 
largely because if they're going to die on a log, they're, they're falling into the water. We're, we're losing them. So box turtles are much more charismatic in that regard, in that they're going to be found by hikers or park rangers, and they're going to be found dead. So that might be just kind of a sampling bias. Um, I'll tell you that in controlled studies that we've done in red-eared slider adults, mortality rate is 100% at, at, um, at low temperatures and fifty still 50% at higher temperatures. These animals die. And then when we do them in juveniles, we looked at red-eared sliders. Um, we looked at river cooters. We looked at um, a couple of different types of map turtles. And the median survival time um, in a red-eared slider after exposure to coronavirus was six days. These things happen quick. Um, yeah. I think in map turtles, it went up to 10 days, but it was 100% mortality. And within two weeks, these animals um, had all died. Um, and, and so... You know, it has it, it is incredible conservation threat for some of our um, really endangered species, especially the, some of the cryptic ones, things that, you know, like the Orient Society works with with spotted turtles. Um, th this is a that that's another species that you could have undiagnosed coronavirus outbreaks if you only go out and sample them, you know, once a month, you could completely miss an outbreak that's occurring in between those periods of times. Yeah. How about the snake question? Are yeah. there any issues with coronavirus and snakes? Yeah, so snakes get coronavirus, but they um, they tend not to have any mortality issues. And and interestingly enough, the the snake coronaviruses um, that have been first reported are associated with red blood cells and not with systemic disease. And so it's really a targeted intraerythrocytic parasite. Um, it might cause some anemia or those types of things, but it it hasn't been associated with a lot of mortality, a lot of death. Ah, okay. Well, that's, I guess, one positive from a snake perspective. But, uh, man, I could talk for another half an hour about coronavirus. I have a million questions, but I do want to get to snake fungal disease because I, I do think it's an interesting topic, and I think our audience will be very interested. So, so let's transition there. Um, and so snake fungal disease. Uh, you know, it's, it's been growing uh, in, in a media attention, both popular and certainly in the, in the you know, scientific world. We've been learning more about it and people are becoming very aware of it. So uh, let's just start with what is it? You know, if you were to just to give somebody the 101 on snake fungal disease, how would you describe it? Well, um, yeah, I mean, that's a, um, that should be a pretty straightforward question. Um, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to make some way to complicate it up a little bit. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that recent um, uh, literature and um, uh, biological um, terminology has changed a little bit in that well, I still call it SFD and snake fungal disease. The proper term is something called ophidiomycosis. Um, and ophidio meaning snake and mycosis, um, you know, meaning fungus, but um, it's a specific disease associated with ophidiomyces, um, which is a, a, a fungal um, organism that lives in snakes, on snakes and um, in the environment. Um, and when affected snakes um, are in contact with ophidiomyces, they develop pustules, lesions, ulcers, and they have that response. So the disease component kicks in. Um, and, and oftentimes, even to this day, and um, we're a little unsure, 
but leads to a significant mortality in certain species. Um, and, and death is, you know, associated with lots of different things, but, but ophidiomycosis, um, is in general, I mean, very specifically a fungal disease that affects primarily the skin of snakes. I just wanted to take a break and uh, tell you guys, if you care about snakes, wildlife, or wild places, and you like what you're hearing on this podcast, go to www.orian.org now to make a difference. The one thing I'm very curious about with snake fungal disease, but also uh, curious with coronavirus, and I'm hate to go back there, but um, it is the origins. Do we know where these came from? Yeah, I think the simple answer is no, but I, I, I won't leave it at just no, um, because I, I think we have evidence um, to lean us in certain directions or, or, or others. And, you know, I'll start with ronavirus, and, and I don't mind going back to ronavirus. I think it, it, you know, a lot of these reptile and wildlife diseases integrate um, and, and the, and, and oftentimes can happen in the same animal. You can get co-pathogens. So I, you know, I think, you know, and that's a lot of what my research has, has evolved into is instead of just looking at a one pathogen issue is how are these interacting within and the animal and within the environment. So we'll focus on Ophidiomyces going forward, but, but I don't at all mind going back and coronavirus you know, the first discussion, you know, we talked about was in 1960 or this discovery. But the um, since that point, it's been heavily intensively sampled starting in the 80s in wild populations of amphibians. And and it's found on every continent that it's that there are amphibians and that it has been investigated. So Africa is a big empty spot because for the most part, nobody's been sampling um, African um, amphibians for rotavirus at all, but I'm confident that there will be pockets that that will exist. And it's it's unusual because there's enough diversity um, even within North America to offer that that you know the first rotavirus either happened a really long time ago in North America, or there were multiple um, introductions of isolated viruses because there's a virus. Um, frog virus three that typically affects um, frogs, um, turtles, and occasionally salamanders, especially on the East Coast. But on the West Coast, we have um, a completely different rotavirus that affects tiger salamanders. And then in, in, in Australia, there's a different rotavirus. So there's been enough evolution um, in enough, enough different locations that, that rotavirus seems fairly ubiquitous and probably um, would go back um, hundreds of years um, in North America. Um, but it's possible that it, it didn't, and it's, it's possible that it had an origin um, or an expansion process similar to what Kittred did in North America. Um, you know, Kittred was here, and, and especially in Illinois, there's research in the early 1900s, but it really kind of exploded in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and then with Ophidiomyces, um, the, um, the origin story gets a little bit more complicated because 
some of these snake populations that we've been studying have been studied for decades with, um, a, you know, frequent but not common um, observation of what we call hibernation sores um, and crusts and things going back to the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, but prior to our molecular diagnostic ability, um, what changed was in, in the late 90s um, and early 2000s is that this started to cause noticeable mortality in certain species. And the lesions weren't just hibernation sores. They were what you described early on in your intro, where they were lesions on the face and the face would be completely disfigured. Um, that's not something that's been been known in the literature. And in fact, I went back to 1860 in the museum specimens in Massasaugas in, in, in Illinois. We looked at 400 snakes and tried to determine when was the emergence in our state based on museum specimens. It was a really cool project. Um, and it's, it started around 1999, um, 2000. Interesting. So what, where is ground zero for Ophidiomyces? Meaning where's the first place that it was documented and, and discovered, um, you know, where, where we had the molecular techniques or the biological uh, <laughs> techniques to, to identify it? Is there a ground zero, I guess, is what we're getting at? It's probably not a true ground zero, so it's You're, so yeah. You, you you hit it on the head. I, I would say hindsight makes us a little bit better at twenty twenty on this. Um, the I, you know it's hard to answer this um, specifically in a free ranging population. It was the Massasaugas in Illinois when we discovered it, um, and then that was shortly followed up by the timbers that you discussed um, in the Northeast, New Hampshire and Massachusetts. Um, but then in retrospect, um, that organism was found in a rehabbed, um, black rat snake from Georgia, um, prior to that. Um, and then if we go even farther back in North, in North America in particular, um, there was a paper in 1992, um, for pygmy rattlesnakes in Florida that, um, described fungal lesions, but didn't find this pathogen. And it's because the techniques didn't, in, weren't invented yet. Um, and it, now that population has, has confirmed Ophidiomyces and it's likely associated with Ophidiomyces all the way back then where they knew it was a fungus. They just didn't know what it was. Um, and so, um, you know, and then there were timber rattlesnakes in the nineties in Arkansas that were also reported to have these types of lesions. So, you know, but, but this is like the craziness of our herp world sometimes is that you, you, you get this folklore of, of all these different, you know, evidence, you know, that, oh, I saw that, you know, back this one time. And, and so it's possible it's true, um, but confirmed cases, you know, the, the first one really in the literature in a population associated with mortality was the Massasaugas in Illinois. So the, these, I have two things I want to ask about that, that are maybe uh, herpetologist folklore, um, but there's two things that I've seen over the years that have been um, mentioned about kind of the distribution of, of SFD and, and those types of things. And the first one is that it is, has like been moving kind of in a wave um, across North America. And I'm curious if there's any, if we have any evidence that that's true or if that's, and that could be a, 
observe how we're observing them. The other one I've heard is that there's this strong overlap with white nose syndrome, and uh, which is a disease in bats. And um, I'm just curious if if that is a real thing, and if there's any connection there. And and um, yeah, if if you could basically shed any light on those two things that I've heard multiple times. Yeah, well, now you're speaking to the epidemiologists. Like, this is what we do. This is this yeah, is okay. the good stuff. Like, and I have opinions surely about those. You know, and you know, I'll I'll, I'll um, you know preface it by saying that um, nobody knows this process. Um, um, fully. And I don't know that we ever will, but I think we have some good idea. Um, I think initially it looked like it had a very similar distribution pattern um, where it was an east to west um, um, observation of disease. Um, it was first, you know, again, found in Illinois and, and New Hampshire um, and then started to show up along the Mideast, um, uh, Southeast and now, more recently, um, throughout um, Texas and, and some of the southwestern states. Um, and then last year, the, the report came out from California. Um, I, I think you hit it on the, the head where um, I, I believe that this is a strong observational um, bias in that a lot of the snake diversity, um, you know, especially in, in colubrids, is on the East Coast and in the Southeast. Um, and we're doing a lot of work in those areas. Um, and I, there have been very few populations, uh, but there have been some that we have looked that we haven't found it. Um, most places we look, we find it eventually. Um, doesn't necessarily mean it's causing disease, but we find the pathogen. And so that's the difference between pathogen and presence. Or, I mean, disease and presence of the pathogen is that, it, you know, it, it may not cause a problem. Um, I, I would say um, that the places in the country that we haven't seen it are the Northwest. Um, and that's largely because there really aren't a lot of snake diversity in that area of the country. Um, and nobody's looking at that stuff um, um, and sampling. So. I would say it's ubiquitous, and especially since it's been found now in Puerto Rico. Um, we've, it's been found um, in Europe, in three different locations in Europe, um, and it's likely going to be found in, uh, in Asia. Um, the, so the true origin, it's hard to say. You know, I guess I'll, this is the perfect time to talk about you know, another per, uh, pervasive thought, and, and that may or may not be true, but I have an opinion on it, is, is did it originate in the environment or did this, was this caused by inappropriate human behavior of any sort? And, you know, like White Nose, where it was introduced by spelunkers to New York and then spread, there's no evidence that this was spread by, um, by a release. In fact, I... We have now documented occurrence of Ophidiomyces causing disease, um, at least in the Southeast United States in the 80s. Um, yes. So can it be spread on boots taken from hikers and herpers that go, you know, birders, whoever, right, that are going from one environment to another? Yes. Um, but is there compelling evidence to say that that's there, there's not a point source introduction like whiteness? Yeah. And, and white nose, as we know, did kind of make that wave across the country. Um, and 
you know, if there is overlap, I mean, my gut was telling me that it was kind of um, some type of observation bias, but um, as well, but interesting. So uh, with, with the snake fungal disease, you've talked a lot about what, what I want to get at is, is prevalence. And, and I don't know, I guess there's two forms of prevalence now, the way I'm thinking about it. There's prevalence of the Ophidiomyces and there's the prevalence of the disease or animals that are, are being impacted. And, you know, I guess so in a general sense, I'm curious about the places we looked, are we seeing kind of these standard levels of, um, of prevalence? And then I'm also interested in kind of like taxonomic questions, similar to what we talked about with ronavirus. Uh, you've mentioned uh, various species of rattlesnakes. Um, it, are, is there, do we find it more in certain species? Rattlesnakes are oftentimes more visible than some other species in some ways. So um, they're studied very heavily. So just kind of curious about prevalence, both at, at coarse scales and then at finer scales. And, um, you know, if there is some taxonomic differences. Yeah, no, um, th this um, is one of our core areas for investigation. Like, I, I, I truly believe that this is how it's how we're going to help conservation efforts if we can understand how this pathogen is working in different environments with different assemblages of species. Um, so we have to know what's going on um, in the general snake population. And, you know, largely out of our work in, in Georgia, um, in Ohio, in Illinois, and then um, um, some more recent work with the Department of Defense, it's clear that there are species differences in disease and prevalence. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting to note is that you know, in that regard, there, there's also a sampling and observational bias because, um, you know, timber rattlesnakes and eastern massasaugas are are threatened or endangered nearly across the, their range in, in the U.S. And so there's a lot of effort to, to survey and sample. And so we're much more attuned to finding subtle lesions in these guys. But the dim, but but it's weird because those animals also have um, some of the the worst lesions that we've ever seen. Um, and even between massasaugas and timbers, it's, um, it's interesting because um, timbers have maybe a um, 30 to 50% mortality rate, um, but it's much lower than a massasauga, which is it's 80 to 90%, um, if not higher um, mortality rate. And, you know, and, some of this, I think, has to do with actual anatomy, um, where um, the this, this timbers are much bigger. Um, they have a thicker skin and in more layers of epithelium. Um, and so they're able to shed, to, to wall off and shed those lesions at a much more effective rate. Um, but one of the reasons that it's also difficult to assess prevalence is... Um, because the disease has different courses of, or different lengths of process in each species to some degree. Some of these pathogens and Ophidiomyces can survive on timbers without treatment for five to six years. Um, and those animals may die from that because there's a lesion internally that just gets so big, but you would maybe never notice it. Like you could clear the skin disease or the animal could shed it off, but it still has a pocket in its liver or, you know, in its coelom or something. 
And those are things we've seen. Uh, Massasaugas are much less buffered to, to really the physical occupation of those um, um, lesions. And those animals have, are much more sensitive um, in general. Do you think, I mean, so this is a fungus and, and, you know, you think of fungus, you know, I mean, I know there's all kinds of different fungi around the world, but, you know, a lot of fungi like kind of like moist uh, situations. Is there anything to that relative to the difference among species? You know, for example, in the Georgia data set, which we worked with you on, you know, with some of the water snakes. Uh, were the ones where we found the highest prevalence. But then we had other water snakes where there was very low to none. Is there any link to that we know about to kind of environmental conditions uh, that would just make the fungus more common in a habitat a snake would use? Or do we think it's all kind of snake response to the fungus? I think those questions become incredibly complex and interesting. Things that we're actively working on and and I, I will tell you, uh, not just Georgia, um, Nerodia um, species in general tend to have a much higher prevalence of finding Ophidiomyces, but their lesions are not nearly as severe or significant as some other species, um, and mortality rates um, are, are lower. Um, you know, another species in Georgia that um, really has the highest prevalence of disease is the indigos. Um, indigos get bad disease, but they don't always die from it. Um, but they get significant disease and some of them definitely die, um, or are impacted where there are some clinical effects on reproduction, where their fecundity, um, is going to go down because their body is putting energy into fighting infections and less so into egg development or sperm production. So, um, you know, Ophidiomyces, um, unlike Ronavirus, which comes in and kills and then it's gone has very immediate impacts. Ophidiomyces has chronic long-term um, impacts as well, where it can affect population growth and distribution for generations um, and has that potential for certain species. There are, there are certain species, though, that have um, distinct scale types that have really low prevalence. Um, you know, we're getting some, you know, earth snakes that you, you just have low prevalences compared to in the same population that have neurodia that have 60% of them have Ophidiomyces. You have some maybe earth snakes that are in that same area that have less than 10 or less than five. Um, so, and, and, and this is highlighted even more so with garter snakes. Um, I will tell you garter snakes proportionately. Um, now there's a couple of species of garter snakes that are different, but um, narrow headed garter snakes are, are, kind of a funky species anyway that's fluctuated between Thamnophis and Nerodia, their entire distribution. But um, most Thamnophis are incredibly low prevalence. And they're um, in the water quite a bit, oftentimes. Exactly. Exactly. They're, they're in those habitats. Um, and, and so that story still needs to be told. We have a current GIS um, specialist that, that, and, and project with a couple of students that are working at mapping um, the distributions of, of really most of our positive samples all over the country to try to identify what are some of those trends um, in habitat quality and habitat type. On a, on a very local level, we just started to um, look at this um, in Lake Erie water snakes, which is a previously federally threatened species, but as um, recovered in the face of 
overwhelming Ophidiomyces um, prevalence. Like 80% of these snakes have Ophidiomyces from year to year. Um, and they breed in these, you know, these balls, you know, 200 um, snake or more balls um, in the spring. And what we found was on five different islands where the prevalence is still pretty good, that there are certain soil types that are more associated with higher prevalence of Ophidiomyces than others. And I think it lends us, you know, just a little insight into what I think we're going to find as we start to delve into this further nationwide, but also in Georgia, is that there are, are going to be habitat types that put these animals, you know, maybe in better contact with Ophidiomyces. And, you know, I think if, if you think about it as a, as, a, as a threshold system, is that, you know, you, you come up with a number like, you know, if an animal hits a threshold of 10, whatever, right, units, it's going to, um, it's going to get disease. And so, you know, you get genetics or phylogeny, taxonomy, you know, massasaugas might get, you know, three clicks um, because they're more sensitive to it, but not all massasaugas are going to get it. So like if they're not exposed, then, you know, they're going to stay under that threshold. If they get into a certain habitat, maybe they're going to add another few clicks. If they are immune suppressed, maybe they are going to get another click. If they have a co-pathogen um, or if it's during breeding season, you know, they may get to that threshold. And that's what's going to explain why we have differences in prevalence um, across species is because each individual snake is exposed to different environmental and physiologic characteristics. And some of them are, are reaching that threshold and others aren't. Well, there's there's this question that we've been, you know, you've been talking around it for um, a while now, talking about different points that relate to it. And, you know, I've, I've been out with herpetologists that say, you know, this isn't a big deal. This has been here forever. Um, other people think the sky is falling and, and there's, uh, you know, everything in between. Um, but I will say there are, whether it's been here or not, there are some definitive uh, examples of the impact it can have on snake populations. You've talked about the massasagas. Um, I don't know if it's actually responsible for, say, declines of certain populations. And I mentioned that I work um, have worked quite a bit over the years on timber rattlesnakes in the Northeast. And um, you know, there's one classic example, really kind of two, but one where, without giving the exact location, one of the populations in New England was very low. You know, I can't remember exact numbers, say somewhere in the ballpark of 30-something snakes. Um, and all of those snakes were known to, to the scientists. And um, there was pretty high prevalence of, of the Ophidiomyces. And these animals went into overwintering. And I can't remember the number. I want to say something like, uh, you know, between 10 and 20 of them were showing symptoms and were doing odd things like coming out and trying to bask in the middle of the winter. And at the end of that year, <clears throat> 16 snakes came out. I may have my numbers slightly off, but I am in the ballpark. And, <clears throat> and so in that example, you know, say somewhere in the ballpark of 50% of a really small population of a rare species uh, was heavily impacted. And, and there are other examples like that. But what I'm getting at, first of all, is how does it physically, you talked about the lesions, how does it physically kill a snake? Um, and then bringing that back out more broadly, are we seeing those types of population impacts? Um, you know, we talked about massasagas. I'd be curious there, but you know, 
are we seeing what we've seen in some of the timber rattlesnakes in other places? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a very classic example of um, the, uh, the New Hampshire timbers. And I, I would say that the jury's still out. Even, even my Im- impression um, and opinion on is this a conservation threat or not. And, and I think you, you, I agree with you is that there's some very discreet, um, um, examples in the last 20 years where, where it's been shown that it does have a conservation impact. And, um, but I also can see prevalence, um, pretty high in populations that don't seem to have a population negative population impact. And, you know, I, so, so I think that's going to be population by population and, um, to some degree. And I think it's going to, there's going to be environmental characteristics that um, make it more important. Like my guess is that that New Hampshire population didn't just get that um, a month before hibernation that year, that there had probably been there for three to five years or more. Um, And so what triggered it that year? Um, And there was either a change in the environment or with um, either humidity or temperature or any number of of factors, or maybe within the host, maybe there was some, something that caused that pathogen to explode um, that year um, that caused more of a conservation impact. And and that I know for sure is, is where any population could find themselves at any point in time and why asking these questions is critical is because it may not be your conservation threat right now. That's, that's going to be the be all end all. And, but it may be, um, and there's evidence that it has been in, especially for at-risk populations. Um, the, uh, um, you know, so, so my opinion is, is, it's kind of in that middle is that there are certain cir- circumstances that this is a tremendous conservation impact. And then there are certain circumstances where it hasn't gotten to a conservation impact yet. Yeah, no, I would agree based on my just observations or studies we've been doing, you know, we've seen some of these impacts, like I said, on timbers in the Northeast, but, you know, as you mentioned, we probably, you know, Orient society probably, uh, handles as many indigo snakes as, as anybody. And we've been seeing these symptoms for as long as we've been doing it and haven't seen appreciable differences in the population. So, well, we've been going on for over an hour now, and I could, both of these uh, diseases that we focused on uh, are fascinating to me. I could keep going, but uh, for the, uh, for the sake of your, your uh, time and family and everything else you, (laughs) you want to be doing the rest of the day, um, we'll begin to wrap it up here. But the last thing about snake fungal disease um, is it sounds like, if anything, there are many more questions than answers at this point. Obviously, it's kind of an emerging disease in a sense. Um, and and so what are the next major steps that you see relative to this, uh, whether it be research, whether it be like coming up with some form of a treatment, but it doesn't sound like we even know if a treatment's warranted yet. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, we could go for, for probably hours more, but I'll tell you that, that we have worked on a treatment. Um, there are effective treatments and, and, and we're getting ready, um, to, um, you know, some of those have already been applied, but, um, 
but we're getting ready to to hone some of those and, and send those out. And but snakes in Georgia, snakes all over have benefited from some targeted therapy, and, and those would work on at risk populations, but um, individuals, but not for populations. Um, so treatment is never really a conservation. Um, you know, management tool that we're going to largely use. Um, but it is one that we have in our back pocket in case there is a highly valuable individual um, that, that needs to be saved. We can improve our success. Um, you know, as, as far as next research, uh, you know, I think delving into this question of species diversity and, and impact um, and, and fungal characteristics is incredibly important. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I think we need to figure out is, is there diversity in Ophidiomyces? Um, so we keep thinking of it as this one pathogen, um, like chytrid, but even chytrid has strains. Um, and does Ophidiomyces have strains? And are those strains associated with different conservation threats? Like, is there an innocuous Ophidiomyces? And is that why some populations don't have a conservation, you know, impact? Whereas massasaugas, you know, and timbers, are they affected by a specific strain that's that's making it, them more sensitive to it? And um, and then the fungal characteristics um, are, are incredibly important. There is still a lot of really lab work, biochemical tests that some of these mycologists that are that go way over my head um, that that they want to do that that you know as I press them into what. What are the tangible benefits? You know, is, is this just for scholarship or is this, um, you know, what, what can we do? It gets my mind turning when they start to respond that there are conservation or management, especially broadcasting different, um, um, you know, techniques that might be capable of reducing the impact of this pathogen. So. Um, I think we're on the cusp of a lot of different projects. Um, you know, we've gotten better over the course of the last 10 years um, in diagnosing this. That's, to be honest, one of the leading reasons why this took so long to diagnose. If it was found in the, you know, in now going back, we can find it in the 80s. But we really didn't develop the tests in, to do it well until the early 2000s um, or mid 2000s. It's because of testing. And honestly, we in our lab, we keep on working on ways to perfect and improve this testing so that field biologists and veterinarians that are out there have appropriate sampling techniques um, that are practical and, and, and um, reasonably cost effective um, in order to know what's going on in their population. Um, you know, I, I, I think I think those there are so many questions and, and I think we can go in lots of different directions and. And we are going in lots of different directions, but um, the the last thing I would say is is we're talking a lot about Ophidiomyces and finding Ophidiomyces, but we're not necessarily talking as much about the host and the animal itself and how it's responding. Um, and that's another area uh, of research that we need um, is because is there something within in in Massasaugas? Let's say it's the same strain across the board. But there's some immune response that Massasaugas are lacking that we could potentially supplement or or they have, but they're just not effective um, at doing it themselves. Is there a way we can modify their environment so that maybe they can have a more robust immune response and fight these infections without us having to intervene? Like these are the goals. Um, you know, wildlife disease is complex and 
um, intervening in wildlife disease is often responsive and reactionary. Um, the goal is to let's change that paradigm. Let's be proactive and preventive and try to find the mechanisms that are affecting this and then do things in the environment that we possibly can. And, and, and we know that that's possible. Like with intensive effort, like invasive plant species have been a major issue, but that doesn't stop us from going out and finding mechanisms in order to remove those plant species and then create habitats that are sustainable and you know, that's one of the, the areas that we're looking at for GIS is is relative percentage of plant invasive species in um, snake habitats with or without ophidiomyces, um, because maybe it, it's something like we're doing already. And there's there's a there's an overlap where getting rid of autumn olive and um, um, a lot of other invasive species might actually improve the animal's ability to fight ophidiomyces, among other yeah. diseases. Interesting. Well, it sounds like the take home is uh, everybody needs to stay tuned because we are still learning a lot about this. Um, and I look forward to, to covering it more over the years. Uh, so last thing I want to do, and then we'll sign off here. Um, I like to have all of my guests uh, tell me one of their best take stories. So I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind just taking a minute and and sharing with us an interesting experience you've had with a snake. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the, you have enough uh, snake experiences, and and um, like it's hard to narrow it down to to one or two. And um, you know, I, I, you know, I could be um, appropriate and and in line with the message that we're giving here, and and it would be true in that one of my most impactful snake moments is when I opened up a museum jar in, in, in 2009, 2010, and saw a massasauga that had a facial disfiguration. And I was like, what is happening here? And then there were two more in that jar that had occurred earlier in that year. Those were the index cases of snake fungal disease. Like I still remember putting it on the table. I, I have that exact moment burned into my memory because most of the last the last 12 years of my life have revolved because of that experience entirely. You know, do I remember the first time I was tubing a snake in the field, um, you know, as an, as an undergrad, of course, like those, those are great moments. And, um, you know, then I diagnosed uh, um, a parasitic infection in a um, Egyptian cobra, and I had to place a feeding tube down its mouth in order to give it oral meds through a tube. Um, like these are some of the the, the crazy, um, most you know, impactful moments with snakes. But honestly, there 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 have been plenty. Um, yeah, it, it's been. Well, I love it, and I, I love that uh, the museum story. It sounds like uh, opening that jar, you know, had a major impact on you and your career trajectory, but also on, um, you know, our knowledge about snakes and, and snake diseases. So um, how do people, if they want to learn more about the work that uh, your lab's doing, um, the work that you're doing, is there a website or social media pages or, or any way that they can find and, and follow you? Yeah, no, there's there's several ways. So our website is vetmed.illinois.edu slash W-E-L. 
You can find us on Twitter. Um, it's Wildlife Epi Lab at Illinois. And similarly on Instagram, um, Wildlife Epi Lab at Illinois. Um, and, and so you'll see lots of stories. We, get po- we do social media every day. Um, it's a pretty active site. And we look forward to, to interacting with anybody that, that is interested. Great. Well, there, uh, everybody heard it. Get on and, and uh, follow follow what, what uh, Matt and, and his colleagues are doing. This is uh, important work and it's it's changing rapidly. So again, I encourage everybody to, to follow uh, the lab and, and their work. And uh, so, yeah, thanks, Matt. I really, uh, really appreciate you coming on. I uh, really enjoyed this conversation. I could keep going, but um, just trying to be um, sympathetic to your time. <laughs> so... Anyways, and then I do want to uh, thank our audience and tell them to remember, snakes are animals too, and it's a privilege to see one in the wild.